Hello, and welcome to the 16th episode of the Ocean Governance Podcast, brought to you by the Ocean Governance Group at the School of Business, Economics and Law, University of Gothenburg. And as usual, this pod is hosted by me, David Langley, Professor of Ocean Governance Law, and Aaron Westholm, both at the School of Business, Economics and Law, University of Gothenburg. Hello, hello. In this episode, we're going to talk about two publications that take very different approaches to analyzing complexity, either in terms of a multitude of policy instruments and their potential inconsistencies, or in terms of how law is nested in and affected by social realities. Okay, Aaron, um, would you like to start uh, introducing your pick for today? Yes, uh, I would. Um, So... Today, I've chosen an article uh, that's called Coastal Lawscapes, a Framework for Understanding the Complexities of Climate Change Adaptation. It's written by Tayana O'Donnell uh, from the Australian National University, and it was published in Marine Policy number 129 in 2021. So this paper starts with the statement that localities around the world face multiple interlocking challenges as they implement coastal climate change adaptation. Some of these challenges include the interpretation of the same laws within different local areas, social power and the use of litigation to enforce that power, and the ways in which uh, governments and property owners frame and perpetuate property rights discourses. The paper is aimed at those involved in adaptation scholarship, and it argues that such scholarships must take uh, account of the interplay between these multiple factors, which reflect the symbiotic relationship between law, people, governments, property, and coastlines. So these interdependencies are categorized here as a coastal lawscape. For those not familiar with this concept, lawscape is a theoretical concept aiming to capture the connection between law and spatiality. Legal scholars that have discussed this concept are, among others, Andreas Filipopoulos Mihalopoulos and Nicole Graham. They've written quite extensively on the topic. Um, And I think that for the benefit of understanding this paper, I'll jump a bit and I'll start by clarifying what the author means when she's talking about coastal lawscapes, because that's kind of you need that to understand the discussion in general, I think. So she claims that there are four uh, elements of coastal lawscapes, and these are property, place, law and politics. Property, both in terms of settlements and private property, but also cultural ideas about ownership. Place, which is the physical landscape, but also people's attachments to places and identities. And law, that is rules, litigations, institutions and policies. Um, And uh, politics can be discussed both temporality in political cycles and versus climate cycles and also tensions between levels of government. So this is a way of discussing law and its relation to both society and nature and in doing so she is also in conversation with the theoretical legal stream of legal geography which is also very much concerned with how law and nature interact and affect each other. 
The aim of the paper is to systematically set out why coastal lawscape is a useful framing by demonstrating that law is a critical element of climate adaptation. Uh, and moreover, how scholars and practitioners working in adaptation can be more systematic in how they both treat and research role of law questions. To do this, the paper uses four case studies, all located uh, along the Australian coastline. These cases examine how climate change adaptation strategies are framed by different policies and laws across different scales, how adaptation strategies are negotiated between local councils, state policy and private property owners, and how adaptation strategies are influenced by cultural understandings of property, climate change and the material environment. The paper is also the result of a larger research project where a number of articles have been published as well in relation to these issues. So after the introduction, the paper continues to discuss the role of law. Here the author claims that law has often been defined as a set of objective rules which govern society. But she concludes that law is just as much about power. In practice, Law is open to interpretation and influenced by power and politics, but also co-constituted with uh, local places and concerns, in other words, by legal geographies. All this complexity of law needs to be understood in climate change adaptation efforts, and these need to be iterative in their design and implementation. Over the last few years, laws have been increasingly uh, used to force political, cultural and legal change, often through litigation, in order to advance responses to climate change impact. To highlight this, the paper brings up a few examples of cases where climate change has been an important factor. One of these cases concerns uh, coal mine licensing, which was denied due to both local factors, um, destroyed landscape, and global factors, greenhouse gas emissions. The paper goes on to discuss why the concept of lawscape is used. And the main argument is that the concept of place is central in climate change adaptation and that place-based legal geography positions materiality as, a cent as central to a critical understanding of what law does and how it is made and remade through space, in places and over time. The approaches to study this subject are described as multiple social research methods based on interviews, service, document analysis, legal analysis, uh, and ethnography. By applying these methods, the paper aims to lay bare and discuss the elements of coastal lawscape and how they interact with climate change adaptation, as I understand it at least. And I think I, I could repeat once again that these elements are property, place, law, and politics. The aim of the case study approach is to show how these elements are expressed in different localities. The first case study from Byron Shear uh, shows how the materialities of a specific place affect the outcome of a litigation. The litigation concerned a revetment wall that needed repairing and the discussions concerned how the wall affected public interest and access to the beach. Um, so the, it was, uh, in essence, a conflict between climate change adaptation in terms of building a wall to, uh, as a response to a sea level rise, and also then the public interest of access to the beach. And the public access uh, 
interest or considerations led to the repairing of the wall being denied and the author claims that this shows the linking of the materiality of places to specific statutory frameworks and this is this opens up to reimagining uh, law and see it as inseparable from its material environment and here i would say i, I must say that i'm a I have a, a bit of a hard time following the line of argument. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm missing out on something, but I would argue that law is always connected to the material environment and the, the specificities of a, of a case. Otherwise, it, it, law wouldn't function. So I, I don't really see how this is a reimagination of law because any licensing case uh, requires a close examination of the material circumstances in the place where the licensing or where the operation is planned. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, sort of the, the, the generality of law is in the lawmaking, in the statutory law, but the application of law in specific cases is always, it should be, <laughs> needs to be uh, cognizant of and dependent on the specific context, and if you like to call it the materiality. The circumstances. I mean, that is the art or the science or whatever of applying general statutory provisions to specific circumstances to, to make the law sort of relevant. Yeah, I agree. So, but anyway, so this was the, f this, this is sort of the, the one of the elements that she uh, investigates here uh, through the case studies. And uh, <clears throat> the second and third case study, they relate to how property owners discuss climate change and how they tend to frame it as something that is either not real or not their problem. Uh, that is, someone else is polluting and it's not their fault and things like that. And uh, either way, how they frame it, it is framed in a way so as to not affect their use of their own land. And the author claims that these ideas promote an individualized notion of property that's grounded in the benefits of the self of being in a particular place and seeks to ensure that external threats do not disrupt this idea. And the second example I, I thought was really interesting, actually. Um, that was how local climate change adaptation strategies were reframed as uh, flooding strategies instead of sea level rise strategies to become more acceptable to the public. Because I, as I understood it, there was quite a high um, skepticism towards climate change or at least human induced climate change. And thus any political strategy aimed at sea level rise would be connected to climate change. But if you talk about it as a flood strategy instead people were a lot more open to it and this is interesting how you can sort of reframe it to make it more acceptable um, but anyway the final case highlights uh, perceptions uh, that law plays a role uh, in social ordering and high trust in legal frameworks is important when managing anti-climate change adaptation and politics and sentiments. And this then shows how law or shows law's central place in climate change adaptation. 
After looking at these four cases, uh, there's a discussion about the rationale for the application of coastal lawscape. And law is here discussed as not only the complexity of the strict interpretation of legal rules by lawyers, but also law as comprised of cultural norms and elements of subjectivity in interpretation, enforcement and compliance. Um, adaptation on developed coastline is fraught and highly complex, nuanced and local. And the adaptation imperative is not simply an adjustment to variable weather, but a transformative and complex system of societal change intended to overcome the rise of irre irreversible climate system breakdown, made worse by policy, policy inertia uh, on the question of reducing and mitigating emissions. And in conclusion, the paper posits the framing of coastal lawscape as an appropriate way to capture the complexities of climate change adaptation across scale, jurisdiction and time. It's an account that centers legal geography and a relational view of law, place and people. And I think that I should start out by saying that, as you uh, very well know, David, I'm uh, myself quite interested in, in uh, legal geography. And I think that the lawscape concept is interesting and provides insightful contributions to legal theory. Uh, but however, in this context, I'm not convinced that it adds to the case studies. I think that the case studies in themselves are quite interesting, uh, but the heavy focus on uh, coastal lawscapes does not really uh, give an explanatory value to these cases. The first case, as I said, relates to a court case where the material conditions in a specific place affected the outcome. But I don't see really how the use of lawscape adds a value to that analysis, as we already talked about. And the second and third cases, uh, they raise interesting questions about how individual interests affect possibilities of implementing climate change adaptation measures. However, I'm not certain, or I'm not sure that it has a strong connection to the notion of property, not as much as the author claims as well, at least. For me, it seems to more have a connection to how people in general are reluctant to change their way of life or behavior in the, in, in, in the face of uh, climate change. That, that yeah. is regardless if they own the property or not. Yeah, and I would think that people who feel that their sort of perceived self-interest is threatened, they will they will grasp for any kind of argument that will sort of support or sustain their claim that they want to, well, remain in some kind of privileged position. And, and if you then reach out for the concept of property or something else, it might be, I mean, human rights, whatever, that, that could, could sort of defend your position. Uh, of course, property has, has this huge potential in certain um, circumstances in certain arenas but uh, i don't think as you say property has made necessarily that uh, privileged position overall no not not in this case but i think yeah but i mean um, as, yeah as a part of coastal lawscapes if we use that concept i think that individual interests would be a, a more uh, encompassing yeah yeah uh, i think yes exactly concept maybe mm. Mm. And I think that, I, I mean, 
the lawscape concept could be useful in trying to tie all of these cases together, but the constituent parts here did not need the layer of lawscape, I believe, or at least I'm not convinced. And I, I think that uh, maybe this relates to that I was also looking for a more clear definition of what climate change adaptation was. Uh, it seems as the author was discussing uh, more strictly measures relating to sea level rise, such as building walls. But adaptation for me, or adaptation, the, the discussion, the scientific debate on adaptation or adaptive management is, is a lot broader. And I think that the lawscape concept would be more useful in this broader discussion on how to formulate adaptive management and adaptive regulation. As it is there that the need of understanding of the role of property, law, place and politics becomes really apparent. I do think that the concept of place is really underexplored in a legal context. And in that sense, I think this is an interesting article. But in, because place in terms of not only the physical characteristics of a specific place, but also the social meaning and attachments to the place. Um, adaptive management regimes need to be cognizant of both social and natural aspects of place. And here, here I do think that the lawscape concept could be used and and really fill an important function. But I think that uh, in this paper, I would have liked that sort of connection to the broader adaptation debate. Yeah, yeah, I recognize what you, what you say, definitely. Um, it, there, there is a lot of moving between the very concrete and specific, as you say, a wall, for example, and these um, very abstract reason, this very abstract reasoning about this on a conceptual level, and I don't feel that they are always sort of clearly uh, linked. That, that that you get how they how they interact these different levels of the discussion. Um, I, I also, I mean, something that that the author stresses a lot is, as you say, the need to to recognize to be cognizant of. Sort of the complexities. The, the, she talks about the nuances and the entangled complexity of law and different social factors here in this context. But I mean, if if I was tasked as as some kind of a manager or or, or judge or whatever to deal with this, I would be looking for some kind of tools or frameworks mm -hmm. to make sense of of these entangled complexities and nuances. And I don't think that this article sort of points me in any direction in terms of what to do with this. Of course, as as an academic, I have the privileged position of, of sort of, I, I can maintain in this realm of problematizing and, and pointing to complexities. But if it is to help with tackling climate change and, and sort of furthering climate change adaptation, we need to take the step also to look for, okay, what are the practical tools that could help us out in in actually implementing the complexities or understanding, navigating this. Yeah, and the implications of understanding this lawscape. Well, yes. How, how, I mean, how does it affect policy or... Ex exactly. Uh, what, what are the policy implications of this? Um, uh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> it is, of course. It is, of course. Uh, something I did find um, interesting, though, was that um, she highlights early on in the article 
something that of course uh, might seem uh, as sort of self-evident uh, banal that in, in practice she says law is shown to be open to interpretation influenced by power and politics and co-constituated with local places and concerns and and of course it is i mean how could it not be law is the result of political processes most of the time it's an instrument for op operationalizing uh, political decisions uh, um, it is uh, influenced by the parties uh, where the law sort of plays out. But then she continues to say that there is also danger in this openness and there is a need to be cognizant of current populist realities while also alert to the rapid and cascading material changes impacting our environmental, social, economic and cultural systems. And I think she captures this very important tension here between, on the one hand side, being aware of the fact that law is not, in fact, this sort of objective, um, clean, neutral arbiter of interests. Uh, not at all. It's it's sort of it's it's messy. It's it's open to interpretations. It's open open to all kinds of influences. At the same time, if law is to play any role in society, which, as a lawyer, of course, I think it should, and it has the potential to do so, we also need to uh, somehow maintain or, or um, try to protect the parts of the law that nonetheless aim for some kind of neutrality, some kind of general, generalizability that tries to contain the un, uh, sort of unhampered uh, pursuance of short-term or, or individual interest, etc. Yes. So that law at the same time is very uh, sort of deficient in many respects, but is also perhaps the best instrument we have for trying to level playing fields in many in many circumstances and, and uh, sort of um, making a framework uh, for the uh, exercise of power. Yes, I think that um, EU law has an interesting role in in, in that sense that it it seems as if often the member states are quite unhappy with specific uh, environmental uh, policies from the union or but it's like it's there and we need to follow it so law here can actually f really fulfill a purpose by being applied in its wording and in, in a at least aimed to be neutral sense yeah 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 and, there, yeah. and uh, i mean maybe the eu has a kind of a special position there but uh, but it, it really highlights how law actually sometimes can function to, to push environmental development as well. Yeah, it does. And it also provides more local or national decision makers with, with a very welcome sort of someone to blame for policies that you don't like, but maybe you realize that you need to implement so they can always oh, yeah. <laughs> refer the blame to the EU. Yes. Talking about EU uh, policies, should we uh, move on to your article? Yes. So my article is called Protecting and Restoring Biodiversity Across the Freshwater, Coastal and Marine Realms. Is the existing EU policy framework fit for, fit for purpose? And it was authored by Jocelyne Riard, Manuel Lago, Catherine Abholt, Lina Röschel, Terry Kafeke. Helen Klimek and Verena Matthijs. 
and was published in a journal called Environmental Policy and Governance, volume 28, back in 2018. So it's not uh, completely fresh, but fairly recent anyhow. And this article takes as its point of departure the fact that anthropogenic pressures have had and continue to have extensive negative effects on biodiversity in freshwater, coastal and marine ecosystems. In a European context, some progress has been made in this regard, but Europe is still far from achieving its policy objective of healthy aquatic ecosystems. Looking at the policy framework for achieving the EU's biodiversity strategy in aquatic ecosystems, the authors uh, find that it is linked to a complex array of interlinked policies and instruments. The most far-reaching ones being the Birds and Habitats Directives, the Water Framework Directive, and the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. And of course, all these are sort of uh, centerpieces of EU environmental uh, law and policy. And although there is a significant body of literature that discusses the effectiveness of EU environmental policies, the authors uh, contend that relevant research largely has focused on assessing individual environmental policies and individual water realms, so freshwater or coastal or marine, rather than the complex set of policies in place, which may in fact reflect a patchwork of incoherent ambitions. And here the authors also point to a growing body of literature highlighting the conflicts and trade-offs between biodiversity protection on the one hand and policies supporting economic growth and food security, uh, etc. on the other. So uh, against this background, the paper aims to make an integrated assessment of EU policies that influence aquatic biodiversity in order to determine how EU policies and laws contribute to achieving or are hindering EU and international biodiversity targets. And more specifically then, the paper discusses whether the European policy framework in place has a synergistic or a conflicting mix of instruments to address the main problems facing aquatic biodiversity, and also whether there are any significant gaps in this regard. This kind of overarching analysis, they mean, um, can provide insights into the coherence of EU policy frameworks, and it's, it is relevant to a large range of policy processes. The analysis focuses on EU-level legislative text and policies. It does not um, examine national or regional implementation. It examines the general scope of relevant EU policies, the instruments they establish, and whether these provide a comprehensive approach to tackle aquatic biodiversity loss. But considering the large number of EU policies and laws that potentially influence aquatic biodiversity, a main methodological challenge is found to be how to adequately represent the causal chain between EU environmental and sectoral policies and aquatic biodiversity and to select a limited but representative set of issues affecting aquatic biodiversity across realms. And in order to handle this challenge, the paper uses the so-called DIPSIR analytical framework to structure the analysis of causal link between human activities, aquatic biodiversity and European policies. And for anyone not familiar with, the, with DIPSIR, it is an abbreviation of drivers, pressures, state, impact and response. And in this particular article, 
the Dipsy framework is defined as a causal framework used to describe interactions between society and the environment that helps to disentangle the bio biophysical and social aspects of a system under study. Adopted by the European Environmental Agency in the early 1990s, uh, Dipsy is often used to analyze and assess the social and ecological problems of various environmental systems. And it has, uh, for example, been used in the implementation processes of the EU Water Framework Directive and the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. This study applies the Dipsy framework to six known pressures uh, of aquatic biodiversity and draws observations on how European policies contribute to reducing human pressures on aquatic biodiversity, as well as how they may lead to an intensification of such pressures. So to limit the scope of the analysis, the Dipsy framework was applied to a selected number of pressures, which, according then to relevant studies which the authors draw on, have a significant impact on biodiversity loss, and also represent a diverse range of threats to aquatic realms. And the six pressures selected here in the study were nitrogen pollution, extraction of species, water abstraction, invasive alien species, morphological alterations, and plastic waste. And there is um, a, a good table, I think, that describes how they link to underpinning drivers and trends also. And these um, pressures then also represent three general pressure categories, namely hydromorphological pressures, pollution, and biological pressures. And the authors, the, they developed a, a template uh, to apply the Dipsy framework for each of the six selected pressures and determine the relevant information linked to the pressures and existing EU policy frameworks. Drivers and state indicators were also linked to each pressure according to the DIPSI uh, model. And relevant European policy instruments were selected by examining their direct and indirect relationship to the list of selected pressures and identified drivers and state indicators. And the, the article then includes a table that links policy instruments, such as the European um, Birds and Habitats Directives, the Water Framework Directives, and the um, Marine uh, Spatial Planning Directive, to the drivers that they target, and to the potentially tackled pressures, according to the Dipsy logic. Overall, um, the authors find that the six pressures that they use are well tackled by the reviewed policies through instruments such as pollution emission control, adaption of best available technologies, water efficiency and groundwater recharge, etc. The um, Birds and Habitats Directives, the Water Framework Directive and the Marine Strategy Framework Directive are found to be the most relevant overarching policies, establishing cross-cutting objectives and targets on the state of the aquatic environment. And the article provides very brief summaries of the main regulatory mechanisms and objectives of these instruments. More specific policies were also found for each of the six, six pressures, such as the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive and the Nitrates Directive with respect to nitrogen pollution, and the Common Fisheries Policy uh, with respect to species extraction. And the objectives and main mechanisms of these instruments are also uh, described very briefly um, in the article. 
However, there are also a number of EU policies which can lead to aquatic biodiversity loss by supporting the development of particular economic sectors, including different EU funds, the common fisheries policy, and thematic communications from the EU Commission setting out various strategies, for example, for short, short sea shipping, uh, European industrial renaissance, etc. And these are described in the table that links policies or instruments to promoted drivers, such as fishing, transport, tourism, aquaculture, etc. And once more, there are very short descriptions of what is promoted by these different policies and pieces of law. And very little attention is, is given to the content or the conditions of these instruments. I mean, not to deny that there are significant challenges associated with many EU support instruments from an environmental perspective. But when the article notes sort of in passing that EU funding instruments, so quote, uh, EU uh, funding instruments such as the Common Agricultural Policy have started to decouple payments from production objectives and to financially support more environmentally friendly investments and practices through mechanisms such as the rural development programs, end of quote. Then I think that a very important dimension of the analysis is treated too cursorily. I mean, something that has the potential to turn into or could potentially already be turning into a protective instrument rather than something that promotes drivers is treated only as um, something that counteracts the protective objectives uh, in the previously discussed environmental instruments. Anyhow, I think the analysis reveals that substantial policy gaps remain in addressing the selected pressures sufficiently and to ensure that conflicting policy objectives between environmental protection and economic growth are reconciled, there needs to be further uh, analysis here. The authors contend that um, to achieve greater coherency and more integrated policy implementation, future re research should test management concepts that offer an explicit consideration and management of trade-offs between different societal and policy objectives. And they say that promising ones here include the ecosystem services approach and the ecosystem-based management, which is now being applied in marine policy. And I think it's, it's absolutely true that we need to um, look into management concepts that engage more clearly with trade-offs. I think that's, that's definitely uh, something that is very, very useful. However, at the same time, I'm not sure that, for example, ecosystem-based management here in itself uh, is, is the answer, because ecosystem-based management is often uh, criticized in the literature exactly for uh, evading this uh, need to, to sort of clearly navigate or take a stand on, on trade-offs, and oftentimes leaving that to uh, sort of um, um, political decision-making. So I'm, I'm not sure that ecosystem-based management really necessarily is the answer to engaging with trade-offs, although it can potentially um, be sort of a vehicle or an instrument for doing that. Yes, I, I uh, agree with you. It seems like also, I mean, many of these policies, they already have uh, references, include references to the ecosystem-based management or ecosystem approach to management. 
and yes, uh, yes, they indeed. still do not. <laughs> or apparently, they don't really handle the trade-off. So it's not. It, it, yeah, it's not a magic bullet for. No, it's, it isn't. And also, the the way that they refer to or define ecosystem-based management also differs a lot. So I mean, depending yes. on what what policy you look at within the EU, you get a sort of a different flavor of what ecosystem-based management might mean. And here, I I think something should be said also about. <clears throat> which scale they look at these problems I mean, uh, uh, because this is at the EU scale they discuss it and the ecosystem-based management but we, we need to also remember that many of these directives are framework directives that need to be implemented in each member state which will then <clears throat> do their own interpretation of what ecosystem-based management is and do their own judgment of trade-offs Yes, yes, definitely. And I think, I mean, ideally, the trade-offs can only really ha happen at a, at a much lower level where, where you have sort of uh, more profound understanding of which are the objectives, which are the interests mm -hmm. that will be affected by different kinds of policy choices. Uh, so the authors refer to, to their study as, uh, quote unquote, the first comprehensive high-level analysis of EU policies relevant for the protection of aquatic biodiversity across the freshwater, coastal and marine realms. And um, I mean, it is rather comprehensive, although one could certainly come up with additional rules and frameworks that have an impact on aquatic biodiversity. But of course, somewhere one has to draw the line and delineate to get the manageable material. And it is indeed, I would say, high level. Um, at times, uh, the analysis is at such a high level of abstraction or aggregation that I think it almost loses touch with the practical reality that actually affects aquatic biodiversity. So sort of in, in terms of the inevitable trade-offs here between a comprehensive analysis in terms of comprising many instruments and policies and a detailed analysis in terms of understanding and problematizing the nature and the effects of individual instruments, I think this article is rather far out towards one extreme. That is, a lot is covered, but with a very low resolution. But still, it, it makes a it makes a very clear um, it makes very clear the, the potential conflicts between intentions and effects of of protective instruments and those that aim to support economic and other kinds of development in specific sectors or regions, and hence the need for increased integration between these. But sort of a proper discussion about how such integration is to happen requires a much more detailed analysis. But this article can serve as an inspiration for such analysis and for indicating which areas are in most need for detailed analysis and potentially policy reform. Yes, it really can. And I think it's, a, I mean, it's, it's really an ambitious article. And I, I like the approach of highlighting how entangled all EU policies are with each other and how it's impossible, or at least it's not enough to create strict environmental regulations if all other regulation and policy doesn't follow suit. And I mean, but, but, but the problem is, as you mentioned, and as we talked about just recently, it, it's, this is at the EU level. To, hmm, to yeah. this comes all of the individual national implementation of member states and policy development, but also the international level. If you wanna, if you wanna bring in everything, and yeah, yeah of course, um, I mean it's well needed research. I think as it points explicitly to how how complex legal systems are and 
and that this needs to be recognized in lawmaking. But as you say, it's a, it's a very much a, a macro perspective. It is, yes. Yeah, but I, I also think that it, its main contribution is that it, it provides a map or a framework where we can sort of uh, see how the protective environmental EU instruments, how they are located within the broader framework of policies and, and laws. And here I think additional laws and policies could have been brought into the picture. But, but anyhow, um, and of course, as you say, um, we, if we look at the protective instruments in isolation, which, which oftentimes happen, not least in environmental law discourses, then of course we, we lose uh, all these potentially counteracting forces that are also promoted or, or driven by different kinds of, of official policies and, and, and instruments. So it, this could really be uh, helpful in terms of uh, or a starting point for making policy integration happen across a broader realm of, uh, or a broader set of different um, instruments and policies. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, uh, I, both papers, they use different ways of approaching the connection between social and natural systems, while the paper you presented uh, approaches it through the kind of the social policies that affect and the more environmental policies. The, the paper I presented more looks at the actual social sort of interactions on a local scale. And both, so both of these connect to this concept of lawscapes, uh, which discusses the in interconnection between law and humans and nature. And I think that the, the dipsier approach that they use in your paper, it, it, it's perhaps more fit to understand adaptiveness. I don't know. I think it's, Maybe it's more instrumental in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 developed for sort of to be used uh, in a practical analytical context. Um, I think more more than just sort of highlighting complexities. It's it's intended to to be sort of be a, a policy tool. Yeah, but maybe I think what the lawscape concept could add is that the dipsir has kind of a technical focus. Mm -hmm. While the lawscape Indeed. perspective includes also sentiments and attitudes towards policy or towards the landscape, this idea of place. And I, I do believe that <clears throat> these two approaches could be merged in somehow. The, the paper by uh, Rouillard and others, it aims to capture this holistic picture, but it focuses strictly on the policy aspects. And this, of course, mm. captures a very, I mean, really important factors of environmental governance. However, understanding the local perspectives is it's equally important to be able to implement these different policies. And here, I believe that the lawscape concept could be useful in understanding these the different aspects, the, both the former rules, but also places, property, people, and politics, uh, as as this is where the policy policies need to be anchored. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, I think you, 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 one could think of sort of merging the perspectives and have both the dipsy and the lawscape in, in one study, one article, looking at the more uh, limited geographical scope, for example. And I think that would really make a, a, a sort of a more comprehensive um, 
analysis of that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, looking at, yeah, all, how all of these policies sort of are layered upon each other in one locality or in one, I don't know, one municipality or something like that. That would be really interesting to see. Yeah, Both, and also yeah. how how the intended sort of implementation or operationalization of these formal instruments may be affected by all the um, the materialities of of the of the place. I mean, yes. the, the local sentiments and values and interests and uh, what have you um, that affects the the actual realization of the objectives set out in these policies. And then we haven't even started talking about adding the adaptive management layer onto this no, as no, well. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Making it even more complex. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I mean, it, it's difficult because I, I like uh, when authors are not afraid of embracing complexity in mm. in. in in any sense, but it's, but it is always difficult to do it in a comprehensive manner because just because it is complex. Yeah. So so it's yeah. Yeah, I think that's sort of a, a perpetual challenge that we we note <laughs> over and over again. This this sort of need to navigate between capturing a lot, uh, not not being too narrowly focused, so that you lose the bigger picture, but also being able to sort of address the relevant complexities in the particular case i mean it's yeah yeah you know that i'm interested in law as a simplification instrument that, yes, that yes. law simplifies nature to make it more legible to us humans and our management systems but this simplification process that's what we need to fine tune to mm. to find the right balance between simplification and complexity i think yeah but it's that's difficult. quite some task yes <laughs> it is <laughs> you've got you've got a lot of work to do Aaron. happy i have a future okay maybe we reached the end of today's episode yes i think maybe we have so um thank you so much for listening and i hope you enjoyed uh, this episode yeah, uh, thank you very much. We will uh, see what happens now in the future, uh, but uh, hopefully we got another episode coming sometime. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so take care and um, bye. Goodbye, thank you.